Well, thanks so much, Jim, and good morning, everybody. Great to see you all, and uh, what a joy to be with you on this Pentecost Sunday. And as Jim has just read to us, uh, despite it being Pentecost Sunday, we're going to resume our Daniel series, and I'm going to speak to you this morning from Daniel chapter 7, but I want to show you how poignant and powerful this is on this Pentecost day, and uh, hopefully bring out some of the meaning uh, for that for you. Whilst we look at the whole of Daniel chapter 7, I'd love you to put a finger in three other places of Scripture. The first is Revelation chapter 20. Revelation chapter 20, the final book of the Bible. Uh, the other two are Matthew 24 and Mark 14. Revelation 20, Matthew 24 and Mark 14. And uh, uh, let me pray and then we'll jump right into it. Father, as we've been singing, your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. And we thank you today that your kingdom is unshakable. That it endures and outlasts every earthly empire. And we thank you that as we confess the name of Jesus, as we place our lives in his hands, that we find ourselves as citizens of your kingdom, recipients of everything you have done and won for us. And we pray today as we turn to your word, Holy Spirit, that you would come and meet with each one of us, that you would speak to our hearts, that you would change us, that this wouldn't just be head knowledge, but that you would set us ablaze with love for you and empowered by your spirit to serve you in this time and in this land. And everyone who agrees with those prayers said together, and I hear you through the airwaves, amen. Amen. Well, a week ago, Louise and I uh, shared with you what we believe God is doing uh, at this time and how he's particularly calling us to wait on him and to grow and mature spiritually and how he's calling us to find afresh the relocation of the source of our spiritual lives being God within our households. And it's really interesting uh, as we think about the spread of the gospel through the New Testament and as we've tracked it through the book of Acts, what's fascinating is that the gospel and the power of God that landed at Pentecost landed on, firstly, Hebrew followers of Jesus, Jewish followers of Jesus, and then Greek converts to, to Jesus, to the way, who innately had within their own cultural understanding the value of family. And so when the church was dispersed, as we read in Acts chapter 8, it was dispersed in households and families. And that is the moment that the gospel spreads the quickest and the most powerfully as it is decentralized and scattered throughout the Mediterranean world. And we see in three short centuries the conversion and overturning of the religious um, dominance of the worship of Caesar and the Greek and Roman gods 
to the conversion of Christianity within the Roman Empire. So um, we are rediscovering, we believe, and the Holy Spirit is highlighting in this time the value of the household and the family for being the primary place where faith is expressed, transmitted, passed on, and exercised between those who live in our households, pushing against Western individualism and rediscovering a more biblical way of being before God. Now, how does this relate to Daniel chapter 7? Well, I'm going to show you that this morning uh, because I think what we find is a key mindset shift in Daniel 7 that I'm going to bring out for us and apply to our lives. And I'm going to hit three main areas. The first area I want to bring out for us is when Daniel sees this crazy vision, when is Daniel seeing? What is this vision about in terms of a period of time? When is this vision about? That's the first area. Uh, Second area is I'm going to bring out for us how it exposes the strategy of the devil. It exposes the strategy of the enemy of God. And just as a side note, you will rarely hear me talking in church or anywhere uh, about the enemy, uh, about the devil, primarily because when you read Scripture, Scripture contains writings and teachings about the enemy, uh, which total about 5%, which means that 95% of the rest of it is all about God. And I think that's probably about a good percentage ratio for how much we should think about the enemy and how much we should think about God. Uh, But we are on a 5% mode uh, during this preach uh, because there's some stuff in the passage here which I think exposes the strategy of the enemy so that we can clock what he's doing and therefore be free. And the final part that I'm going to bring out for us is Uh, showing us what God does in this time and how that impacts our lives as we seek to live out in our households all that God is calling us to. And I'm going to bring out something I touched on in chapter 2 of the Daniel series, which is the principle of inheritance. Now, I am going to do some teaching this morning, so stick with me, because if you stick with me to the end, we are going to finish with an ordination. We're going to finish with an ordination, and I'll explain all about that when we get to it. So let's dive into Daniel 7 and try and discover what's going on. Firstly, the first six chapters of Daniel, we've had some epic, almost testimony stories. And then the next five chapters, Daniel 7 to 12, go completely berserk, completely crazy. They are dreams, visions, and heavenly encounters with God that Daniel has. And it, and it seems as though the book is almost completely um, uncoherent as a whole. It seems. But what we actually find is in the first six chapters of Daniel, we see God's deliverance, God's faithfulness, and God's working through Daniel and three of his mates uh, in order to bring about transformation where they are. And what we're going to see in chapters 7 to 12 is what is going on in the heavenly realms and what is going on spiritually. 
And so what you find is almost the first six chapters are about the natural outworking, the earthly outworking of God's power. And now what you're going to see in chapters 7 to 12 is what is going on in the spiritual realm. So there's a unity across the whole book between the spiritual and the earthly, the natural and the supernatural. Now what what happens in, in Daniel 7 is Daniel has a dream. And it's fascinating, according to verse 1 of chapter 7, that this dream, this vision that Daniel has, occurs under the most evil of the four Babylonian kings that Daniel serves under. He gets this when he is serving under King Belshazzar, which we've read about uh, in chapter, um, I think it was 5 of Daniel. Uh, so we read about him there. He doesn't last long. He's the worst king, and the writing is definitely on the wall for him. Uh, but it's interesting thinking about when Daniel's in, in uh, serving under the most, um, the, the hardest trial, this is when God speaks to him and shows him further into the spirit realm. So what's going on, and when is this about? Well, the best thing about Daniel chapter 7 in a crazy apocalyptic uh, vision is that we have an interpretation. And what is going on here for an interpretation? Daniel asks an angel to disclose the meaning of this vision. He sees four weird beasts. Then he sees into the heavenly courts of heaven. And then he calls an angel and an angel discloses to him the interpretation. And we pick this up in verse 17. The interpretation of this, of this vision is simply this. As for these four great beasts, four kings shall arise out of the earth. Verse 18. But the holy ones of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever and ever. Very simply, this vision sees four kings representing four empires. And then Daniel sees the saints, the holy ones, the people of God receiving the kingdom and possessing it forever and ever. So my first question is this, when is this vision about? What is it describing and when is it disclosing about what God is doing, when will it happen? And uh, you'll find various interpretations uh, about this. Uh, Some will say this is about the end times, and they will track the four beasts to be four empires that have emerged post-Jesus and disclose how God is working on the earth, and then the, the holy ones of the Most High possessing the kingdom is about the return of Jesus and the making new of all things and then the people of God possessing the kingdom forever and ever and ever. I want to show you first that this interpretation of Daniel 7 I think is flawed and it's flawed for two main reasons. The first reason it's flawed is because the scene of the heavenly courts that we read about in verses 9 to verse 10 is not similar in any way to the final judgment of God before Jesus returns or as Jesus returns. The second reason is because of the trajectory of the Son of Man. 
Let me describe what I mean about the heavenly courts first of all. Daniel sees into the throne room of heaven. He sees the ancient of days. He sees the father on the throne. He sees thousands and thousands attending him. And then he sees the son of man coming towards him. But if you look at Revelation chapter 20, what you're going to find is some very key differences between the final judgment of God on all of human history and what Daniel is seeing in chapter 7. The first difference is this. In Revelation 20, what you see before the final judgment of God is all of the dead human beings being raised to life and standing before the judgment seat of God to give an account of their lives. The dead don't appear in Daniel's vision. So that's the first reason uh, why this isn't. Uh, The second reason in Revelation 20 is you see the final judgment on death and evil being delivered. And what happens in Revelation 20 is evil and death and Satan are thrown into a lake of fire and never return. Whereas in Daniel 7, what we find in verse 12 is that though the, the fourth beast is destroyed, what we find is that the rest of the beast, verse 12, their dominion, their power and authority is taken away, but their lives are prolonged for a season and for a time. You don't get that in Revelation 20. Uh, the final uh, thing uh, that you don't get in Revelation 20, that you do get in Daniel 7, is you get the Son of Man being pronounced as righteous and the verdict of the heavenly courts being delivered in his favour. The point I'm trying to make is that what Daniel is seeing is not the end of time, is not the end of human history. What Daniel is seeing is not the final judgment of all of human history and all of creation. Daniel is seeing another time. So we might want to ask ourselves when that time is that Daniel's seeing. But let's just pick up another um, reason why this isn't about the end times. And then I'll show you um, what it is about. Uh, The second reason is the trajectory of the coming of the Son of Man. So imagine the heavenly courts, as I've just been describing. Then what we have in verse 13 is this. Daniel says, as I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. Now read carefully. Where does he come to? And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. This isn't about the end of history. This isn't about the end times because when we read that the son of man comes on the clouds, He's not coming back to earth. He's not descending. He is coming to the throne of the ancient of days and being presented before him. And what does that remind you of? When is this, be, when is this describing? Daniel is seeing the ascension of Jesus, the Son of Man, Jesus who gave himself the title Son of Man, becoming as one of us, doing what we could not do. Daniel is seeing 
Jesus, once he's been resurrected from the dead and ascending into heaven. If you flicked open Acts chapter one, do you remember how Jesus left earth and went into heaven? How was it? He was carried on the clouds of heaven. And where did he go when he entered heaven? He went before the throne and then he sat down at the right hand of the Father. So what Daniel is seeing, now now look at this, look how consistent this is with what happens here. I saw, verse 13, one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and kinship and all peoples, nations and languages that they should serve him. And his dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall never pass away and his kingdom one that will never be destroyed. Daniel is seeing the ascension of Jesus. Now check it out. If I asked you to turn to Matthew 24 and Mark chapter 14. Let's turn to Matthew 24 first of all. Because in Matthew 24, you'll see what people will often describe as end time stuff. And in Matthew 24, if you look at verse 34 in Matthew 24... Jesus has been teaching about the signs that will come to pass. And Jesus says, verse 34, Truly I tell you, this generation will not pass away until these things have taken place. Okay. Jesus says, This generation, the people I'm speaking to now, will not pass away until these things have taken place. So what does he say? He quotes almost directly Daniel 7. If you look back to verse um, 29 and verse 30. Immediately after the suffering of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. All the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. He's quoting Daniel 7 and he's saying this generation will see that. Now what will they see? The sun darkening, the moon not shedding its light. What happened at the cross? The earth lost its light. The whole earth shook. The powers of heaven were shaken. And then they could see with their spiritual eyes the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. He said, this will happen before this generation passes away. And he wasn't lying. Let's look over to Mark 14 and hopefully I'll make this even clearer. Jesus is being questioned in Mark 14 by the high priest almost immediately before his crucifixion. It's Monday, Thursday, It's in the night and Jesus has been arrested and he's been questioned by the high priest. Now in Mark 14, look to verse 61. Verse 61 in Mark 14. Again, the high priest asked him, Jesus, are you the Messiah, the son of the blessed one? And verse 62, Jesus said, I am. And you will see the son of man seated at the right hand of the power of and coming with the clouds of heaven. Jesus quoting again, Daniel 7. And he says to the high priest, you will see, you will see this, the Son of Man 
seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. He is, he is saying, Daniel 7, you are going to see. And as we look at Jesus' ascension, we see him ascending on the clouds of heaven, coming to the throne of God. And what Daniel sees is what happens. The kingship, the dominion, the power, the authority are given to him and he begins to reign. Daniel 7 sees the commencement of the reign of the Son of Man over the earth and what he then sees as it's interpreted to him by the angel, is he sees the Son of Man sharing that with the holy ones of the Most High and them taking possession of the kingdom. When is Daniel 7 about? Daniel 7 is about Acts chapter 1 and all that Jesus has won and established for those who put their trust in him so when Jesus ascends up into heaven and begins to reign with the Father and releases the Spirit on the earth, this is what is happening in Daniel chapter 7. Now, what are the implications of this for us? The implications for us I'm going to bring out are twofold for us. Number one, the implications for us are the exposing of the removal of the power of the devil and the giving of the authority and the glory and the power of the kingdom to the holy ones of the Most High who begin to take possession of the kingdom now. Now let me just bring out the implications of the exposing of the power of the enemy. And what I want to do uh, in this is show you uh, and, and give you a little test for your own thoughts about whether they are being influenced by the, by the influence of the demonic voice or not. And let me show you what I mean by that. So let's skip on into Daniel um, 7. And what we, let's pick it up in verse 21. And in verse 21, the most arrogant, proud, and awful of the four beasts speaks against the holy ones of the Most High, against the children of God, against the believers of God. Verse 21, As I looked, this horn made war with the holy ones and was prevailing over them. Verse 22, Until the Ancient of Days came and then judgment was given for the holy ones of the Most High and the time arrived when the Holy Ones gained possession of the kingdom. So there's a time over here where the enemy represented in the fourth beast is prevailing over the believers, the Holy Ones of the Most High, until judgment is given for the Holy Ones of the Most High. And then after that time, they take possession of the kingdom. Let's, um, let's skip down into verse, let's pick this up again in verse 25. We get a bit more insight into the strategy of the fourth beast, which is personifying uh, the voice of the enemy, the voice of the devil. Verse 25. 
He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the Holy Ones of the Most High and shall attempt to change the sacred seasons and the law. He shall speak words against the Most High. He shall wear out the Holy Ones and shall attempt to change the sacred seasons and the law. What do I want to bring out of this? Daniel 7 exposes for us and highlights for us that the enemy of God has lost his power and what he has simply is influence through deception. He lost his power when judgment was pronounced in favour of the Son of Man and that happened when Jesus ascended and everything that he'd won through the cross and the resurrection and when he ascended on high, the Father who'd sent him as the Son of Man received him back into heaven and the Son of Man sat down at the right hand of the Father and began to reign with him. And at that moment, Daniel sees judgment is pronounced in favour of the Son of Man and that favour cascades onto the holy ones of the Most High who've been won by the Son of Man and carried with him through his ascension. And what that means is that the authority that the, the devil had over human beings, the authority that the enemy had over human beings, the authority that the enemy had over culture and over kingdoms was broken because the Ancient of Days... God the Father pronounced judgment in favour of Jesus Christ, the Son of Man. His authority was removed and authority was given to Jesus through what he did and shared with us. And what that means for us now is that the enemy of God has no power and authority but only seeks to trade by influencing our thought life. And here are four tests for us to look at our own lives and see, are my thoughts, are my attitudes being influenced by the devil or not? Is this helpful for you? Yes, I hear you say. Here are the four tests. Number one, are we prevailing in God in life or are we being prevailed over by the power of the enemy or by our circumstances, in our thoughts. Listen, it doesn't mean whether we are in trial externally or not, but internally, are we losing? Internally, are we pressed down? Internally, are we crushed? Because the time when the enemy prevailed over the holy ones of the Most High is pre the pronouncing of the heavenly courts in favour of what Jesus has done. So in our own thoughts, in our own hearts, in our own spirits, if we are being prevailed over, if we're losing the plot, if we're losing internally, then we're coming under the influence of the, the thoughts and influence of the demonic realm. That's the first one. Secondly, verse 25, where we think things about God which are untrue according to his nature... We are under the influence of the voice of the demonic realm. 
because according to verse 25, he speaks words against the Most High. He did it to Adam and Eve in the garden. Did God really say you couldn't eat from that tree? He's speaking words against. He's, he's twisting our understanding of the truth of who God really is. How many of us have heard people say, or perhaps even thought in our hearts, well, do you know what? I didn't think God, you know, traded in giving diseases, but, you know, the world really needed coronavirus because we're having a big reset, so maybe God is, is doing this. Hang on a minute. <laughs> what is the truth about God? 1 John tells us, in him there is no darkness. <laughs> there is no shadow of turning. In him there is light. But the enemy seeks to persuade us against God and speaks words against the Most High. So the second test is, do I think about God consistent with the new covenant of Scripture and consistent with the true nature of God who is love and who is light and in whom there is no darkness at all? The third way that we see if our thoughts are being, persuade, are being influenced by the demonic realm is by getting really, really busy. Do you know the enemy is so clever that he can distract us from stepping into our God-called, God-given destinies by giving us lots of good ideas to busy ourselves with and to wear ourselves out. He will wear out the holy ones of the Most High. How many of us are busy and yet not fruitful for the Lord? The way that we bear fruit for the kingdom, Jesus teaches us in John chapter 15, abide in me and you shall bear much fruit. You know, there are a million, billion, terrific, good, godly ideas to do. But you and I have one thing that God would ask of our lives. You know what it is? Because he will speak to your heart. I know what mine is. And we need to know what ours is. Because he will busy us with good things that distract us from the God things that he's calling us to do. Uh, the third thing, um, uh, the fourth thing, sorry, is that he will attempt to change the sacred seasons and the law. What does that mean? You know, Here's a fourth test about our thoughts. How many of us feel not good enough? Do you ever feel that? Do you ever feel like other people are better than you in their faith and we compare ourselves? Do you ever feel, actually, if I do this thing, I'm sure either God will be pleased or maybe my leaders will be pleased. What's happening is the enemy is trying to get us to think in a way not consistent with the season that we are in. Because the season that we are in is that we are good enough for God, not because of our own merits, but because of what Jesus, the Son of Man, did for us that we could not do. So the truth is, no, we're not good enough, but we are good enough because he made the sacrifice and ransom that we could never make. But when we feel not good enough, or we feel like there's something in my past that I can't really accept God's forgiveness for, that is the enemy trying to take us back pre the cross, 
and make us feel and adopt an identity which is pre what Christ has done for us. And that is where the enemy is trying to change the season that we're in. You and I are acceptable because of what Jesus has done. And so all the stuff about not being good enough, comparing ourselves, being insignificant, whatever, is a load of filth from the pit of hell that we just need to strip away from our thought life and step into what he has done. And what this isn't is a 21st century sense of self-empowerment. But what this is, what I mean is, in our culture today, we're told, you're good enough, you're amazing, you can be whatever you want to be. Well, you can't actually, (laughs) because you can't be everything that you can be without God in you. But with God in you, everything is possible. That's the truth of the gospel. Christ in you is the hope of glory. That you can step into the glory of God when you are surrendered to him and he is allowed to be glorified and magnified in your heart. So all the other stuff is actually how the enemy seeks to press down believers, press down the holy ones, wear us out. And this is something that God has broken by pronouncing judgment on Jesus Christ by laying on him at the cross the iniquity and sin of every human being for all of time. That was thrown on him at the cross. And when we give our lives to Jesus, we stand under the shadow of the cross. And when Jesus rose from the grave, he was releasing new life, which means it's possible for you and I to be born again. And when he ascended on high, And he came on the clouds before the ancient of days who rendered kingship and dominion and authority and glory on the Son of Man. It was rendered on you and I because we have placed our lives in him. We have taken up our cross and followed him, the Son of Man. So we are taken up spiritually into the heavenly realms to sit down at the right hand of the Father, from whom kingship, authority, dominion and power are released in our lives so that the earth can be restored and the kingdom of heaven can influence, I don't know, I was going to say invade, inflict, Um, influence, whatever, any of those terms. So the kingdom of heaven through the king who releases authority on the earth, through the holy ones who live on the earth, taking possession of it and releasing it through their lives so that the kingdom of heaven can become the kingdom of this world. Does this make sense? So don't think that we're prevailed against in our hearts. We may have earthly trials to contend with, but remember what James 1 said, consider it joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trial. And trial, according to a New Testament Christian, would have meant persecution. But James 1 says, consider it joy when you face trial. Why? Because that's when you're going to find endurance and character and ultimately hope. But internally, when you feel prevailed against, when you feel like you're losing the plot inside, that's taking you back pre-Jesus. Bad idea. When he speaks against the nature of God in your thoughts, Bad idea. (laughs) That's pre-Jesus. When he wears you out through overactivity, trying to get you to do good stuff, but not what God is doing. Bad idea. That's pre-Jesus. That's the enemy speaking. When he tries to change the season that we are in, which is recipients of the cross, the resurrection, the ascension of God, and today the 
flow, the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the season that we're in. And whenever we think differently, that's the enemy trying to change the season that we're in. Bad idea. Get it out of our thoughts. Does that make sense? (laughs) Just think with God. Write down in your journal. Is the way that I think being influenced by the strategies of the enemy, the thought life of the demonic, and I need to change that today and just say, I'm not going to think like that any longer. I'm going to think in a way consistent with what has been won for me through the Son of Man. Amen. (laughs) The final uh, thing I just want to bring out is is that Daniel is seeing in chapter 7 the ascension of Jesus, and I've just been describing the the, the bringing up of all of us into the heavenly realms. And what that looks like for Daniel, verse 27. Well, let's pick it up at verse 26 just to remind us again. The court shall sit in judgment and his, as in the power of the enemy, his dominion shall be taken away to be consumed and totally destroyed. The kingship and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people of the holy ones of the most high. Their kingdom shall be an everlasting kingdom and all dominions shall serve and obey them. We are called to take possession of what God has done. And here's the truth that I want to bring out and the mindset shift I want us to take into our households and into our families. Jesus has established everything here on the cross. This is the cross, the resurrection and the ascension into heaven. You and I live here on this side on the 31st of May 2020. We are living in recipients of this, which means that on God's side, everything has been done, everything has been established, everything has been won, everything has been put in place for you and I to take possession of the kingdom. If you're reading the NIV version, it may say, receive the kingdom. Now, there's nothing wrong with that, but it doesn't bring out the full power of the term being given here, which is to take possession of the king. Take possession. It belongs to us. It is ours. We are owners of the kingdom. We are inheritors. The kingdom of heaven has been shared by Jesus, so it now becomes something that I am an owner of. I I can take possession of it, I am not only living in it as a recipient, but I am someone who owns it and therefore can advance it in my life. And the point I'm trying to make is that everything necessary for that to happen has been done and put in place by God. Which means that you and I simply need to lay hold of this by faith and then release it through our lives. Let me just sharpen this. You know, Louise and I, I think, probably have been quite challenging for some of us where we find the atmosphere in our households and in our families really, really challenging. And, you know, I just pray the, the counsellor, the, 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 the Holy Spirit who builds us up and comforts us, comforts us in all things would just give us strength to just see this in the way that I'm preaching about this morning. But think about our own house and our own family. What I'm trying to say to us is 
everything on God's side has been put in place for you and I in our homes, in our families, in our marriages, with our children to take possession of the kingdom and to see that become a reality in our homes, literally in our homes. The God stuff isn't something we do at church, but something that flows from in our homes outwards. Now the hardest thing that we may face in our families, the hardest thing that we may face, God has provided all that is needed for us to take possession of the kingdom of heaven in our homes, whether it's the atmosphere, whether it's something generationally which has shackled your family. Hang on a minute. The blood of Jesus has severed every chain. (laughs) He's done everything that's needed. Is it a miracle that we need? Is it peace? Well, do you know what? God has done something that has ended strife and rebellion and has released, king, uh, the, released the peace, which is a hallmark of the kingdom. Romans 14, 17. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. So if our households are unpeaceful, you can take confidence that God has done everything necessary that you need in your home for you to take possession of peace which passes all understanding, and you release that. Now, when I say God has done everything, that means it changes how we pray, but we do need to pray. So if your home is unpeaceful and there's turbulence and chaos, then in your mind, you can say, well, God, you have won peace which passes all understanding with my kids, with my, in my marriage, in my home. So then I need to sit with God and in my thought life, I can, I can now align myself with biblical truth. God has won this. And I can begin to now just pray over my family and say, okay, my birthright as a holy one of the most high, as a son of God, as a follower of Jesus, my birthright is peace which passes all understanding. And so in the name of Jesus, I'm going to wait on you. I'm going to, I'm going to pray this into being. I'm going to believe this. I'm going to walk up and down, you know, my home when the kids are in bed. I'm going to release this over the atmosphere. I'm going to declare this. I'm going to proclaim this. I'm going to lay hold of this spiritually until it becomes a reality. Let me apply this in all sorts of different ways. You know, I spent too long in my life believing that I could not receive the intimate, tender love of the Father because of my own earthly experiences. And I believed in my heart that I could never get the revelation of the Father. And suddenly I was like, oh my goodness, I'm believing something pre-Jesus. He has won a connection with God to be as intimate and close with me as he was. He has won that for me through what he did. So I began to say, oh, okay, I'm going to be a recipient of what you've done and I'm going to begin to pray. Father, teach me your ways. I'm going to wait on you and not wait passively. I'm going to pursue you in prayer. I'm going to begin to say, I want to know you. I want to have an encounter with you just like Jesus did because that is my birthright. I want to know your voice. I want to know your love. I want to know your whispers on my heart. I want to know your smile in my life. And I'm going to pray and pursue you until I lay hold of it and it becomes a reality for me. I don't know if this makes any sense. 
What does it look like to take possession of the kingdom? You know, uh, I used to be a chaplain in a secondary school and they would write, what does success look like? You know, for, a, for an assignment or something they were learning. Or, you know, sometimes in like business workshops or whatever, they'll say, what does success look like? What does success look like for you and I to take possession of the kingdom? Success looks like intimacy and obedience to the Father, just like Jesus. Success looks like freedom, authority, and power, just like it did for Jesus. And success looks like the gifts of the Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit characterizing our lives. Intimacy and obedience with the Father. Freedom, authority, and power like the Son. And the gifts and the fruit of the Spirit in our lives. And that is what God desires for you and I in our homes, with our kids, in our marriages, on our own, blessing our neighbours, living amongst those on our street. That's what it looks like to take possession of the kingdom. And I just want to sort of finish by illustrating again for us the principle of inheritance that I referred to in Daniel chapter 2. You know, and the way inheritance works is that when you inherit something, you are receiving something which someone else has worked for who upon their death transfers ownership of what they worked for as a free gift into your ownership. You take possession of it. So think about this. If you have ever inherited property, what happens? Your parents or whoever you inherit from have worked hard and paid off their mortgage and they own that house. They then die. And how inheritance works is then that ownership is transferred to who they designate to be a recipient of all that they worked for as a free gift to the inheritor. Think about this. We take possession of the kingdom. We inherit the kingdom because someone else, Jesus, has done all the work, has put everything in that's needed, has done every single thing that was required for the kingdom to be transferred to him by the Ancient of Days. He fulfilled what we could never fulfill on the cross. He rose again, which we could never do. He ascended into heaven, which we haven't done, and came before the Ancient of Days who pronounced judgment in his favour. He died, having done all the work so that we could inherit everything that he won and has given to us. And when you inherit property, if that becomes yours, you need to move house. You need to move into it <laughs> so that it becomes your reality. And so the reality that belonged to them before becomes now the same walls, the same space, the same property boundaries that become your reality. 
So when he gave up his life, when he rose again, and when he ascended on high and sat down at the right hand of the Father, he then released that to us to possess so that we become possessors and inheritors of the kingdom. And you and I now look at that coming to us as a free inheritance gift and we simply need to say, right, I am moving into that place. I am moving into that. I'm taking possession of that, not in triumphalism, not in arrogance, not in self-focus, but in recipient, in, in, as a recipient of the gracious free gift of everything the Son of Man has done for us and transferred to us. So here's the question. Here's the question. What would it look like to take possession of the kingdom in your family? What would it look like to take possession of the kingdom in your life? You know, look at it. This is just, you know, if Jesus has won it for us, why wouldn't we lay hold of it? And sometimes you need to be bold by faith and say, I am having that this summer. I am having an encounter with the Father because I've never had that. I am, I am going to see into the spiritual realm and see God's purposes like never before because I know there are some people like that, but I've never done it. I am going to hear his voice like never before because he's won that. I am going to live in peace like never before because that's what he's won for me. I am going to press in to him and receive joy because I want that to characterize my life because I've lived too long under despair and under depression. I am going to lay hold of and take possession of everything he has won for me. And this is going to characterize my life now and forevermore because this is the season that I'm living in, that Daniel saw in the, 600, in the late 500s BC that Jesus won 2,000 years ago and which you and I on the 31st of May 2020 get to look back, lay hold of and live out for the sake of our households and for the sake of our neighbours. Does this make sense? <laughs> and all God's people said, Amen. So I want to close with this and then just leave us to have an encounter with God. I want to close with an ordination. Now, I'm not starting a new denomination and I'm not taking uh, undue authority unto myself. But what I'm saying is, for this to make sense, we have to lay hold of the fact that we are a kingdom of priests. We are the holy ones of the Most High. And so what I want to say to you is, today I am ordaining you as priests of your household and priests of your street. Jesus ordained you 2,000 years ago, but he's called me today to speak this over your life on his behalf and to spiritually ordain you to step into this reality in your home and for your neighbourhood. In 2008, the Bishop of Chichester ordained me in the Church of England. And, re and really what that means is that they are living out in the ordination ceremony what they found to be a true spiritual anointing and mandate from God in the Scriptures that they are entrusting, 
me within the Church of England institutions and ways that it does. They're entrusting me to live out in Ashington, Washington, and Whiston, along these South Downs and to the ends of the earth. And on, in 2008, the bishop laid his hands on me and gave me his blessing, his authority, his mandate to live this out until God moved me on, moves me on. And today, I'm calling you to step into your royal priesthood for your household, for your family, for your neighborhood today. And so wherever you are, stand to your feet. <laughs> because I'm going to pray some prayers, and then I'm going to pray over you, and then I'm going to leave you to have an encounter with God. Do you believe the things that I've just been saying? Do you believe that God has provided everything that you need to live life as Jesus and for the godliness that you live out? Do you surrender all of your life to Jesus? Do you follow him and love him in response to all that he's done for you? Do you want to give your life in response to his death on the cross, in awe of his rising from the grave, in utter worship of his ascension on high and his reign as king of all kings and lord of all lords over the earth? Well, in response, God is calling you now to rise up as a priest designated by him, appointed by him, given authority by him to take ownership of the kingdom, to take possession of the kingdom in your home, in your family, in your marriage, in your life, for your neighbours, for your work colleagues, for your street. Will you take possession of the kingdom of God given to you by Jesus Christ himself? I hear you bellowing at the screen. Yes and amen. Will you take possession of this on this day and live from this day forward believing that you're called, given everything that you need by God and you will do all that you can to lay hold of by faith all that he's won for you? And so now, in the name of the Father and of the Son, of the Holy Spirit, I bless you and appoint you and release you to step into and to realise your royal priesthood this day, this Pentecost day. That you would know that Jesus is sending you, that Jesus has appointed you and Jesus is releasing his power and sovereign authority on you to take possession of the kingdom at home, in your daily life, and for your neighbours. In the name of the Father and the Son, I spiritually ordain you as priests of your household to live this out from this day forward. Not wondering, will God do a thing in my life so that I can step in? God is doing 
everything that you need on his side because he's done it all. It is finished, said Jesus. The work is done. And it's for us to enjoy and to lay hold of. So I send you now in the power of the Spirit. I release over you the authority given to me as as rector of this church. I release it over you as a fellow son of God. And I say, go and be witnesses to Jesus in Ashington, Washington, Whiston, right along these South Downs, on the South Coast, on the North Downs, right across this land, right across this nation. I release you in the name of Jesus. I release you as a priest in your own home to take possession of the spiritual atmosphere and to live it out, to be witnesses in our land and to the ends of the earth. And I bless you now in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. (laughs) I love you. (laughs) More than that, God loves you. (laughs) Father smiles over you. And he says, there's no one else I would have rather chosen. I love taking earthen vessels and filling them with treasure from on high. May the Lord bless you and keep you and cause his face to shine upon you and turn the light of his countenance towards you. And this day, may his peace, which transcends all trial, all hardship, may his peace mark your life and your home forevermore. Amen. Do you know, at the end of the worship, um, Jim kind of closed worship and we sort of transitioned into reading and preach time. Uh, But the Holy Spirit was moving and Luke was just getting just the sound of heaven just emanating in his ears. And we just caught ourselves before rushing on and we just had a few moments where Luke just released what I believe was the sound of heaven over the church and over this land. And so just, you know, before we finish and close this thing, what I'd love you to do is just just now have a few moments to receive from heaven, to have an encounter with God, to just be absolutely blitzed by the power of his spirit, to let the breath of God come and breathe on you, to overshadow you, for his power to fill you, and for the heart cry of heaven to just be placed within your own heart. That it would uh, just give you some space now, just as Luke and Claire just sing and worship and put earthly words and music to what God is releasing. As they do that over us, I pray now that you would have an encounter with God that just changes things shift stuff and changes all of our lives, that Jesus would be so magnified that we'd be changed from this place. So you might want to stay standing. You might want to lie down. You might want to kneel. You might want to sit. You do whatever you need to do. But just adopt a posture of receiving, taking possession, 
catching God's heartbeat, catching his, feeling his breath upon us. And after that, we'll, we'll fade out and go on our way. So God bless you guys. Holy Spirit, come. Glorify Jesus. And release the Father's love, we pray. Amen. Have you, can I say, have you, have you got something brewing there? Yeah. Because I, I can we just take three or four minutes and just let that just roll for a minute? You know, even if we drop it at the end.
Uh.